Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. We are kicking off the final leg of our series on James entitled Walk This Way as we are joined by the Reverend Dr. John Guest. Pastor John will be preaching from James chapter 4 on the dangers of pride. Just a quick reminder that you can get the rest of the messages in this series on our website, which is ccgf.org slash sermons, or the Christchurch app, which is available on iOS and Android devices. Now, here is Pastor John with this week's message. Thank you for listening. I could say, let's pray and go home. How's that sound? Don't get too enthusiastic because I'm not going to do that. But that was great. Pastors we have at this church are amazing. And that's not all of us. And the music that you have just and we have just worshipped with here is fantastic. Man, we should sell tickets for this. Well, we're going to look at James. And just to give an intro again... James is the brother of Jesus. And there is one of the books in the New Testament that's named for James as the author. And another thing that one commentator has said is that James, because it gets into all the practicalities of day-to-day life, if you're going to live like Jesus, is really an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, which his brother Jesus taught. And it should be said too, because we're going to address the issue of pride, because that's what James is, one of the things he's addressing in chapter 4 of this letter of his, his, this teaching, is James at one point did not believe in Jesus. He was part of his family, not his mother. His brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. And that's, it. that's in the Gospels. That's not me making that up or some tradition. They actually went to get him away from the people, the crowd he was teaching, because they thought he'd gone mad. He was beside himself, as the scripture says. So can you imagine what that did to James... When Jesus walks out of the grave alive. Can you imagine he has to eat those words? And that attitude. Because Jesus, by virtue of the resurrection and then the ascension, clearly demonstrated he was who he said he was. God in the flesh. The Son of God. Can you imagine having to eat those words? I just have to say in passing, I hadn't prepared to say this, but Thomas, doubting Thomas, said, unless I put my finger in the nail print and my hand in his side, I will not believe. That's Thomas, one of the apostles. Well, Jesus turns up. And the disciples are like, wow. And Thomas is there this time, and he, he says to himself, because you can imagine, this is not in the Bible, I'm just interpreting what he must have thought. He is alive. 
And then Jesus singled Thomas out immediately and said, Thomas, put your finger in the nail print and your hand in my side. And what do you think Thomas thought? He must have heard me say what I said about a week previous. He must have heard me. But I didn't see him. But he was there. And now he's calling me to account. Can you imagine Thomas? He chokes. He is alive. All Thomas could say, he didn't go up and put his finger in the nail print. He didn't put his hand in the side. All he could say was, my Lord and my God. That's his response. So here is James, now teaching us about humility. Or, the opposite, don't be prideful. Listen to these scriptures from James chapter 4. In verse 6 it says this, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Do you want God as an opponent? Do you want God to come take you on? Do I? God opposes the proud, but gives grace, love, encouragement, mercy to the humble. Listen to this statement, verse 10, same chapter. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Do you want to be humble? Well, let me rephrase that question. Do you want to be lifted up? Do you want the Lord to lift you up? Well, the only way to have the Lord lift you up is to stoop, kneel, surrender to him, acknowledge him. That is tough. I remember a guy, he came from the Presbyterian church denomination and where we were worshipping at the time, everybody knelt to pray. And he said to me, some years after his experience of entering that church and beginning to worship there, he said, if for the longest time I could not kneel. Well, he was an arrogant guy. He was kind of full of himself. And after he came to Christ, he still battled that, as do many of us. Because pride is the essence and nature of everything that rebels against God. Here are some of the words I jotted down just to talk about them. And as I say them, ask yourself, do I want people to see me like that? Do I want to be this person? The co-relative of pride in the Bible languages is actually boasting, boastful. Sometimes it just absolutely says that instead of being humble. Against pride is to be humble as against boastful. Do you want to be a boaster? I think the answer is probably no. How about arrogant? Do you like people to tell you you're arrogant? How about having to take the credit for everything you do that might be construed as good or terrific 
or helpful. Do you have to get the credit? Take the credit? Let people know how good you are? Haughty? Which is a disdain for others? Vainglory? Which is like boastful? Conceited? Egotistical? Full of self? Narcissistic? Broadcasting how great you are to show off. Is that you? Would you like us to think that of you? Are you? I hope you're all saying no. I must say, when I first got married, I was pretty full of myself. I just captured this beautiful girl. I mean, not literally, I captured her heart. We met in the spring, June of 1967, and we were married by Thanksgiving. So you could add that up, and that's 50 years this year. So 50 years ago last month, I met her. Married by Thanksgiving, and not long after that Thanksgiving, I was pretty full of myself. I don't know what it was. I wish I could remember. Well, maybe I'm glad I don't remember what it was. But I was showing off to Kathy and asking her how great she thought I was, <laughs> in effect. And all she said was this. She only ever said it once. But I've got it etched. She said, sweet little demure. You know my wife? You should get to know my wife. She's fantastic. Sweet and she was even more fantastic than I kind of ruined her in marrying her. She was really amazing. <laughs> really. She said, I love me. I love me. Oh, how I love myself. I love me. I love me. See, my picture's on the shelf. She said that right to my face. She cut me right down. So I know what that's like to be into myself. And we can be proud about either being English, being a preacher, minister, being an engineer, whatever you are, whatever you can do well. Uh, Let me ask you this. Which state in the USA is the most braggadocious about its state. Any ideas? Texas. 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 There you go. There's Texas over there giving it the thump day. It's amazing. I've been to Texas. And it's pretty flat and ugly most of the places I've been. So I don't know what they're raving about. Don't, don't cool off here now. But this particular Texan, with his thousands of miles of ranch, thousands of square yards, anyway, of ranch, millions, was talking at one of their conventions, farmers' convention, to a Pennsylvania farmer. And he said, said, I won't try and speak like a Texan or even an American, but he said, (laughs) this Texan, I can get in my truck... And I can drive all day long on my ranch and not reach the other side. 
And the Pennsylvania farmer said, I used to have a truck like that. <laughs> Good response. <laughs> I ain't talking about my truck, I'm talking about the size of my range. So here is the Bible telling us that kind of attitude and show off about anything is completely inappropriate. And he gives two examples. And here they are. The first of them is speaking about a kind of self-righteousness which is really disgusting because it comes off as judgmentalism. Brothers... Do not slander one another, speak evil of one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, of course that's the Lord. The one who is able to save and destroy, that's the Lord. But you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, given James' background as a Jewish man growing up in Israel in his day, like Jesus, the people that you would be most aware of would be those legalistic, perfectionistic Pharisees who dressed a certain way, kept all the rules and regulations and were proud of it and condemned quickly anybody who erred from what they and their tradition and their interpretation valued as right and correct. And those are the people who Jesus had the harshest, harshest things to say about them. Because he said, you look good on the outside, but on the inside you're filthy. He said, on the outside you're like a whitewashed tomb. On the inside, full of dead men's bones. That's Jesus. To these self-righteous, full of themselves, legalistic, perfectionistic Pharisees. He knew their hearts. He said, you're like a cup that's clean on the inside, but on the outside rather, but on the inside is filthy. So when this says, who are you to judge anybody, that points the finger right at me. I'm a preacher, have been for over 50 years now. But I tell you this, I am filthy on the inside. I am a sinner. Do you believe that? I am telling you the truth. As I stand here, where if there were in me any kind of self-righteousness that's about me and how good I am, I'm absolutely dead meat in the eyes of Jesus. I am a sinner saved by grace. I am a sinner, I trust, daily becoming more like Jesus, but I am a sinner. 
So I don't stand here and point the finger at you. The scriptures might. The word of God might. But know for me, the only righteousness I can ever claim is a righteousness that I received from God when I put my faith in Jesus. And it's a gift from Jesus. So he clothed me in himself. I am in Christ. And when the Father looks at me, he sees me in Jesus. That's another whole doctrine and teaching. But know that any self-righteousness which would create in us a judgmental attitude, which quite honestly is the result of our feeling inferior ourselves and needing to find somebody else to point at and point out that they're wrong. That's one illustration he uses. Here's another. And this is really about a sort of a secularist businessman who's organizing his life for himself with his own knowledge. In fact, let me just preface it before I read it and say, this guy could have a Harvard MBA. He could have some real backing and resources to go do business. You can't do business without money. So you'd have to have somebody who will back you financially. So this guy, you could say, had a Harvard MBA and knew how to do business and had the backing to go do the business. Or maybe had accumulated the wealth that would let him do business. Get the picture of a guy who thinks he knows how to do business and make money. And this is what he says, and this is verse 13 of James 4. You say, today or tomorrow, take your pick, next week, we will go to this or that city. Almost like they're sitting in front of a map and picking out where they're going to go do business. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. I have to say, there's nothing wrong with planning. I've got stuff in my calendar for 1919. I've got a bunch of stuff for 1918. I'm still running around with a calendar for 1967. That's when I met Kathy. Still got that calendar. It's organizing the world around you without God. That you are the center of the organization. You are the power. You are the elitist. Listen to what it says. Why? You do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. So these are clearly the kind of businessmen who know what they're doing, have the money and the backing, and are picking their shots at how to go make more money. And they know how to do it. And they plan their lives, but they plan their lives without God. And that's what the Bible calls the world. The world organized apart from God's way. Really, says James, you ought to say, the Lord wills. 
When I was a young Christian, the Christians in England, which is where I became a Christian and grew up as a Christian, would say this. They'd say, uh, I'm going to go downtown Pittsburgh tomorrow. Uh, I'm using colloquialism now. I'm going downtown London tomorrow, DV. That's D for Dennis, V for Victor. DV. Or they'd say, I'm going to go to such a university, DV. Or, I'm going to go preach in this particular place, DV. DV. I said, what's DV? They said, that's Latin for, or let me say that again. That's an abbreviation for Deo Volente. I said, what's that? They said, that's Latin for God willing. So what they were saying under code was, God willing, I'm going to go to London. God willing, I'm going to go to such and such a university, etc. Deo Valente, God willing. Well, verbally, you can see what, where they get that from. They knew enough about the Bible to know to say, God willing. But you can say that even verbally without really having it in your heart. And that's where we fight our battles, on the inside. Are we willing to let God have it all? Are we willing to give it all to him? Are we willing to let him really take the driver's seat? We like him in the passenger seat, giving us advice, like me driving with my wife. She gives me all kinds of advice right from the driver's seat. We put the Lord there. Is that what we want? Do we want him at the end of a telephone line? Help. Not in our lives. An email away. A text away. By the way, you heard the line, have you? If you honk, you love Jesus. Honk if you love Jesus. Text if you want to meet him. (laughs) Anyway, I saw that on a bumper sticker. So you want to text the Lord, get a message, get some help? He's not into that. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants to reside at the core of your being. Pride is often the great deterrent. In fact, I would say this for myself. Other than there was a whole lot of sinning I wanted to do, When I heard about Jesus and the gospel and the possibility of having Christ in my life and having my sins forgiven and becoming a new person with my home in heaven when I died, when I heard about that, one of the things that made it really difficult for me to take that seriously was I knew I had to surrender the autonomy of my life. Give up the reins. Give up the driver's seat. Give up the throne. Give it to Jesus. The battle, the ego battle between me and the Lord Jesus. What's that about? Pride. Having my own way, running the show for myself. And we can sing and say words like Deo Valenti, God willing. But the battle really is fought on the inside in the heart.
And Jesus knows it. He knows that's where the fight is. And when pride gets in the way, it becomes very, very destructive. I was marrying off a couple about uh, three months ago down in Chevy Chase, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. may even consider itself to be a part of Washington, D.C. This is a young man that I've known from his infancy. And uh, now he's marrying this beautiful girl. And I'm giving them some tips about how to have a great marriage. I asked them, do you want an average marriage? They said, no. I said, you want a great marriage? He said, yes. Well, I give him, with his, this was one of my tips. Learn how to say, I am wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Now, what stops us saying that? Pride. Are they going to live such a perfect life that they're never going to say it? No way. So, and I've never done this before, but spontaneously I said, I'm going to give you the chance to rehearse those words. <laughs> so I said, turn and face each other, because they're standing there as I'm sort of giving them this little homily. It only lasts about ten minutes. And I said, now say to each other, and you lead off, I said to the guy, I am sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. He choked. (laughs) He said it. And I don't know what had been going on in their lives as they came to to their wedding day. But he he choked emotionally. He wept. It wasn't he couldn't say the words because he didn't want to. It was in saying them it meant so much, even there and then, and we're only rehearsing it against another day. Then I said to Sarah, Say, I was wrong. I am sorry. And they're looking at each other, eye to eye. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I'll tell you what. Just as practice, on your way home, you say that to each other, whoever the other is. I was wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? Okay, Evan? I see you smiling over there. <laughs> Mummy will love it. Pride. There was a little song I sang when I first started teaching Sunday school as about a 19-year-old lad who didn't know a lot himself because I'd just become a believer. But I remember this song. Oh, far whiter than the snow... Washed in Jesus' blood I know that from temper, anger, selfishness, and pride, you can set me free today if I look to you and say, Lord Jesus, thou hast died. In other words, the remedy for arrogance and pride is the cross. And when you come to the cross and you stand before Jesus... There is no place for arrogance and pride when you see what he's done for you. In fact, one of the great hymns, one of the greatest hymns, listen to these words. 
Some of you will know the words perfectly and even can sing the music in your head. Listen to these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. It's at the cross. That verse goes on to say, uh, now that's skipped out of my mind. Just hold on a sec. Because the second verse is not like, it's not unlike the first. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, there's that word, save in the cross of Christ my Lord, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. To be in the presence of Jesus at the cross. Go there. Ask him to humble you. It's hard not to be humble there. That he would love you enough to die for you. That he would pay the price of bearing your guilt. To take hell on his back for you. So that you can come to him and be forgiven and have a new life. I'm stunned at the life I get to live because Jesus died for me. I'm stunned at the wife he gave me because Jesus died for me. And the four children that we have because Jesus died for me. None of that would have happened without Jesus. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't have the friends I have. It wouldn't be my life. I'd be out there in the world, the flesh and the devil but for Jesus. And I come to him and all I can say is thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't do it. You did it. You led me all the way, even against my will here and there. Right where you're sitting, close your eyes and talk to Jesus. See him coming to you. He loves you as much right now as the day he died for you. He couldn't love you more. He will never love you less. And in your own heart, say to him, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for not being able to trust you. To trust your word. To trust your promises. To trust you. Forgive me. And since you know what's going on in my life and why I might even now be attempting to resist you and keep you at a distance... Come, Lord Jesus, fill me with yourself. Change my heart. Change the direction of the way I feel and what I'm looking for. Help me to trust you. Surrender to you. Hand it all over to you.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you welcome me, forgive me, and by your mercy, help me to begin again. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.